0: Welcome back to the Corporal's Almanac. This is Andy, your host, and today we have a great interview with Dr. Lynn Hunsinger. We're going to be talking about ecology and rangeland management, specifically in California. She wrote this very unique book called Working Landscapes, the Spanish Dehesas and California Ranches, which looks at the similar and different characteristics of these two unique ecologies and how we can learn from the Dehesa model for what California's climate looks like today and what it will look like in the future. So I think this is a really important and special episode. So please take a listen and let us know what you think. Lynn, thanks so much for taking some time to chat. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your work.
1: Thanks very much, Andy. I'm really pleased to be able to talk with you about one of my favorite subjects today. I'm a professor of range ecology and management at the University of California, Berkeley. And that means the ecology of grasslands, woodlands, and shrublands, basically.
0: Awesome. I came across your name because of a book you wrote, or you were one of the editors. I think you might have had something to do with the writing as well, called Mediterranean Oak Woodland Working Landscapes, which essentially compared Spain to California in terms of rangelands. And it was a really interesting book from an ecological perspective, but it also really thoroughly walks through the challenges of trying to compare things that might superficially be very similar. So first, I want to ask what spurred this project?
1: Well, um, a number of us were doing research in uh, Spain. And looking at the Dehesa and how the woodlands of Spain are managed, and they are, you know, they look a lot like California woodlands. So I think what you said in your introduction is very interesting to talk about what is like, alike, and what isn't is pretty interesting. But we were doing research there, always wanted to do research there. It has a similar climate to California, Mediterranean. It's Mediterranean climate, which is unusual in the United States. So to find similar climates... Elsewhere in the world, there's not very many. So Spain's a good opportunity to to do research. And uh, one of the primary collaborators is quite fluent in Spanish and, in fact, grew up there. So that was very useful. And we got a small grant. And we invited a group of Spanish scientists to come over to the United States, to California. And we did this amazing thing, which we call the Spanish tour, all up and down California, looking at our oak woodlands and grasslands, because they have oak woodlands and grasslands too. That's what the Dehesa is. And um, we just really enjoyed that and then started thinking about how to compare them and what we could do research-wise to compare them and what country or an area like ours that's only been that has a completely different history from the dehesa in Spain. But there's been a a human influence that's transferred across the ocean, as well as very similar climate. So it was really fun. And I'd say that the main reason we wanted to do this is because we thought it was fascinating and we had a lot of fun doing it. And so we tried to pair in each chapter Spanish researchers and Californian researchers or American researchers. Um, we also had some from other places in Europe, too, who worked in Spain. I wrote. I was a, one of the editors and also wrote parts of various chapters, um, including the introduction, which is my favorite. But I'm glad you like it. I think it's a wonderful book. I love looking through it. If I'm thinking, huh. How many acorns do California oaks produce or how many acorns do Spanish oaks produce? Since it's a very valuable source of forage for animals and food for humans, I can look it up in that book. And I I like that a lot.
0: Yeah, it dives in real deep on oaks and oaks. I mean, you could just write a book that large on oaks, but I, I don't think that exists at this point. But this is probably as close as I've seen. You know, it's really interesting, you know, that you guys spent a lot of time focusing on oaks and acorns specifically, and they they have such a different use over in Spain compared to traditional indigenous people here in the U.S. Yes. And you talk about that a little bit in terms of, I, I believe it's the blue oaks that you guys have over in California.
1: Well, we have 13 different kinds of oaks and indigenous Californians had a hand in managing all of them.
0: Yeah, I was thinking more like the Berkeley area where you guys are. It's is oh. that blue over there? Well, uh, actually, I'm trying to remember the map.
1: Actually, since we're on the coast and to the north, our most common oak is coast live oak. But you do see blue oaks up here intermixed. I'd say where you see the most blue oaks is in the Sierra foothills. The west side of the Sierra, there's quite a lot. We have a lot here too. Almost everywhere... It's a mix.
0: Yeah, I think oaks, I think, are the most biologically diverse tree in North America, I believe. I wouldn't be surprised.
1: Well, I'm not sure what that means, but...
0: I I meant like the the most different uh, types of varieties.
1: Oh, I don't know. Not a forester. (laughs) I can't (laughs) tell you, but there are a lot of them. And they hybridize a lot. I guess when I think of another kind of tree, well, there's a lot of different conifer species and pine species.
0: Yeah, so I thought the research is focused in a couple of different areas. And the ones that I thought were really interesting were around the grazing patterns and how trees relate to the ground cover, mm. particularly around like when trees were getting cleared, how that impacted soil organic matter, how it improved over the short term, the, the quality of forage and things like that. I'm interested about, like, with California having such a different history in terms Mm. of having been cleared in a different way than Spain, if this is anything so far that you've taken from this book and started to actually go and apply or impact how regulations work around any of this type of stuff.
1: Okay, so in Spain, the oak woodlands, the Dehesa, is a human-created phenomenon And it's created from what uh, would be quite brushy. And oaks are selected and pruned and grown, well-spaced. So I think there's a paper by Joffrey et al. about the Dehesa of Spain as an ecosystem mimic. And it looks at the distribution of oaks in Spain. And so if you look at Dehesa in Spain in the north, you might, I think it was like 60 oaks per hectare. And in the south, it's more like 20 because it's controlled by the amount of moisture that the dehesa gets. And the the ideal is for the oaks to be far enough apart so that their roots don't compete with each other and so that they don't shade the grass. Because the idea is to have the grass be plentiful and abundant because the dehesa is uh, largely used for grazing of all kinds of different animals. As such, which is an interesting thing that we might take a note from, take note of, is that the Tehesa is just, I just, there's been a lot of new work, you know. One of them was a paper where they showed that the Tejesa is pretty much the most fire resistant landscape in Spain, because the trees are fairly far apart and the um, grasses are kept fairly short by grazing. So it becomes a very, not only beautiful, I mean, it's so beautiful in the spring in Spain the flowers are absolutely gorgeous and of course grazing stimulates these flowers a lot of flowers in our kinds of grasslands and so you can see a pasture by pasture one will be all purple flowers and one will be yellow and white it's just it's just beautiful and also incredibly fire resistant so i think there's some things to learn there native americans native californians i can't speak for them but i have been spending a fair amount of time looking at Native American practices lately. There's a woman named Kat Anderson who wrote a book on it called Tending the Wild, a fantastic book.
0: Yeah, it's a great one.
1: Yeah, it's, it's great. Also, Before the Wilderness by Blackburn and Anderson was the first one of these, and it's so eye-opening. It was when I first read it. But the Native Americans were kind of doing that too my impression is, in that they wanted to maximize acorn production because it was a huge staple food. Acorns are very rich in carbohydrates and fat. And carbohydrates in particular are hard to get from a gathering or hunting and sort of uh, food source, <laughs> <stores>, <laughs> livelihood. And in fact, I think it was the acorn that made it very possible not to do too much cultivation, some cultivation. But in Mediterranean ac- uh, areas, the acorns are such a rich supply of, of food. So if you know how to eat them, don't rush out and eat one No, <laughs> They have to be treated because they're slightly toxic. But um, they use fire. And by all accounts, in many areas of California, we have more oaks than we've had before on the remaining open lands, open landscapes. Some we have fewer, you know, it depends. A lot of things affect oaks We like to say everything eats oaks, but in native California, the idea was to maximize oak production. So the open woodlands were very valuable and a lot of burning was used and other forms of management, particularly to keep out conifers, to keep out brush, and to create an open landscape where every oak is very healthy. When they get really close together, they're not so healthy, just like our pine forests now. Our conifer forests are suffering so much from being crowded. So, uh, native California was that was created a lot of the abundance because those open woodlands are also very high in biodiversity because they have both an understory and an overstory and the grass is important for game, you know. To us today it's important also for grazing for many people including many tribes, but A balance between the woodlands and the grasslands in California has a lot of advantages for biodiversity. So, Native California was managed that way. We've changed the oak woodlands a fair amount. We changed the water balance by draining the valley and controlling the water there. And we have cleared oaks, the whole Central Valley, for crop production. So, a lot of oaks are gone. We have the richest you know, most productive farmland, I believe in the United States, if not the world. And so it came from what used to be pretty much oak woodland and grassland. And so that was clear. We clear now primarily for development. People who raise livestock will leave oaks. And I had a friend who interviewed uh, ranchers, Mitch McLaren in the eighties and asked them, you know, if you remove these oaks, you'll have more grass. Wouldn't that be better? Why don't you remove them? And what they said, this may not be popular with your listeners, but what they said is, I want it to look like a ranch, not a farm. (laughs) So so. anyway, they too, and today too, love the scenery and the beauty of the oak woodlands as our native communities do too. Managing for that intermediate level of canopy has turned out to be incredibly wise on all fronts. It's um, the oaks you mentioned, they're like little islands of nutrients, they pump, pump water from deep in the soil and use it to make their leaves. And then those leaves drop either all at once if they're deciduous or just gradually over time. So they provide nutrients and water. They don't compete so much with the grass because they draw from deeper down than the grass will ever get. They're amazing. They have these huge tap roots. And so they, they're paired very well. It's a very nice pairing of plants, I have to say. And so their nutrient pumps, the shade, actually, it turns out in much of the state, especially the drier parts, actually benefits grass growth if it's an open kind of canopy, but still shady a little bit, creates a moisture microclimate under the oaks. So now we know, um, Kenny and Bill Frost did a lot of this research, we now know that those sparse oaks or more widely spread, savannah and woodland, actually increases forage production, at least expands the um, green season to be longer, the grass under the oaks. I think you can see that sometimes of the year. You see this green. It might even green up earlier because it might be a little warmer under the oaks. And you see these circles of green under the oaks at some times a year. It's really, really neat. And they also you know, provide fog drip. We do have fog, especially along the coast. So it works pretty well. There's a recent paper, I think it's coming out or has come out that talks about that's also the richest uh, carbon sequestration in the grassland which is important because those woodlands are fire resistant. And right now, you know, we've been using, we've been concentrating on forests as places where we're going to uh, sequester carbon and save it, but they keep burning down, keep burning down. That doesn't yep. do good. The, you know, last year, I think it was 2020, California sequestered um, 4 million megatons, you can look this up from Cal EPA because I may get it wrong, but 4 million megatons of uh, carbon was lost, emitted, excuse me, 4 million sure. megatons of carbon emitted. And that, that has been um, an improvement because California has been working really hard to reduce its emissions, but not counted in that is 100 million megatons of emissions from wildflowers. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I would like to see our forests managed to be more fire resistant as well. But the oak woodlands can be managed that way. And it's high in biodiversity, resistant to fire and uh, provides good forage for animals and livestock. And so why not?
0: Yeah. So there's yeah. some
1: things to be learned from the Spanish about how they accomplish that. If you look at an oak woodland in California, now most of them, you'll see that the woodlands tend to be clustered all where there's water. Often, sometimes they're very evenly spread, but often you see that they're following water courses up. So I'm not sure if that's, that's probably because there's water, but also because a lot more of the land in California has been cultivated previously than you might think. Yeah, Homestead Act in this area, a lot of uh, land that we think of as natural was at least cultivated for a few years before people figured out that the rain is... um, very unreliable here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do rain-fed ag, so it's all in the valley where they have irrigation and along the coast.
0: Yeah, even here in New England, you know, we have protected woodlands and things like that, and you know, all of this had been cleared out in the 19th century, uh, and a lot of it was even cleared out in the 20th century. So you go out into a, a woodlands, and it's only a hundred years old. It's there's not not too much that's actually. I'm not even talking about like old growth, but older growth forest here. So I'm, I'm not surprised it's similar there.
1: Oh, wow. You look at the eastern half of the United States and it was deforested for a while practically. And then boom, your forest came back. Ours aren't quite so fast.
0: <laughs> yeah. And the, it's mostly those first early succession forests with a lot of the problems you had spoken about, the very tight canopy, which ultimately doesn't really benefit the forest in the long run. And a lot of that traditional environmentalism that is hands off, that's like nature will do its thing. And that's not, that's not how our ecosystems have evolved. And it does erase a lot of those histories.
1: That is absolutely true.
0: And I I was wondering, as I was reading the book, and there's the comparison specifically around the soil quality, you know, obviously, California is renowned for its good soils. I was wondering about like, If the Dehesas are good systems for protecting the landscape in terms of fire and returning nutrients quickly, because even despite the limited amounts of rain, do you think that the... What's the reason why the soils in Spain are so much poorer? Is it because of just the mineral content, the low pH, and all those other issues? Or is this because of the more recent involvement of like petrochemicals and things like that, that have begun to degrade those soils over the last... 80 or so years.
1: I missed that last part.
0: What do you think is the reason why, despite the Dehesas being good farming systems, the soil quality isn't that good compared to like California?
1: Well, you know, um, it's been used. I don't know. I will say right off the bat, but I can speculate a little bit. Uh, First of all, it's been used, that land has been used for thousands of years. The Appalachians kind of pooped out after just a couple hundred years of farming, right? in Appalachian. So I would suspect that simply long-term, a few thousand years of the oak woodlands there can be cultivated to, or sometimes cultivated every few years. But I also think that they're, I don't know. I don't want to talk about it in that sense <laughs> okay. because I, sure. I do know what you mean. And I think that's true. And I don't know whether it's a natural phenomenon or something that developed over time. Now, California you know, you've got a land that wasn't cultivated at the time of colonization, except in some smaller areas. There was no huge amount of cultivation, through especially through the Mediterranean regions. But I wouldn't characterize so that there's a reason why uh, soils might be better, at least at the time of contact. Just on that basis, I mean, the Central Valley where we do our farming is a huge. It was sort of a lot of it was wetlands and. Thousands of years of soils being deposited down there from all the rivers running into the Central Valley has to have helped <laughs> soil quality. But it also, California, it's hard to characterize the soils of California. And the best way I can think of to characterize them, if you're looking at the whole state, is diverse. Sure. There are a lot of different kinds.
0: Sure. And, and I'll clarify that I, I meant the um, specifically the, the places we were comparing in California with that Mediterranean climate.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, the Central Valley is a Mediterranean climate, but it's, you know, and so that valuable rich soil based on all those alluvial deposits and time and everything else, that's mostly used for farming because it is that way. In the foothills where the the oak woodlands are, it's not so great. They're often shallow. Uh, There's a lot of uh, endemic soil like serpentine that is hostile to non-native plants. And that's our best refugia for Uh, native plants because endemic soils take endemic species to grow on them. So our native plants tend to cluster in these serpentine refugia. There's other kinds of soils. There's some on Mount Diablo that are red or something, but we have a lot of very poor soils. If you want to think of it from an agricultural perspective, very rocky. And that's also because not because the oaks desired to or somehow naturally grew on the worst soils, but because all the good soils have been cultivated and oak woodlands have been kind of shoved out of the valley the remaining ones into the foothills where soils are quite variable and on the slopes and i i couldn't characterize those as being good but i'm not a soil scientist and i i, I,
0: I just know uh, in the research there's talk about the soil organic matter content comparisons mm-hmm. that california was i think i think it was like about double in terms of the amount of organic matter compared to the dehesas
1: yeah, I completely believe that. And I think that's just first from long well, term human use uh, yeah. and exploitation of the soil.
0: Yeah, that brings back like the beginning of this conversation uh, when you'd spoken about like the indigenous people managing the landscape for oaks, similar but also differently than what was happening in Spain or what right. is continue- continuing to happen in Spain. I don't know if you could speak any further on some of those practices. I'll put you on the spot a little bit.
1: Native Californian practices. Yes. Well, one thing we do know is that not a lot of tillage. Tillage really damages the soil, and it releases a lot of carbon. I mean, agricultural soils, when because of tillage, release a lot of greenhouse gas, and also because they're fertilized with, you know, coarse nitrogen fertilizers and so on. There's a lot of nitrous oxide that gets released. So uh, neither Native Californians nor ranchers do much tillage. Um, And I think that that has, in a sense, protected the soil. So that would be my theory. Okay. A lot of burning. Native Americans use fire really a lot. Native Californians, that has an influence on nutrient cycling, I suppose. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Those those would go back into the soil.
0: You know, one of the things that's interesting about Spain is low volume of animals that they actually put in pasture their stocking rates just you know i think they're talking in that book the number i think is one pig per every two acres or something Mm -hmm. along those lines which is you know fairly sparse i mean given the the climate i guess it it makes sense
1: well the, the pigs are living off of acorns sure and is that an annual stocking rate do you think i think so if it's an annual stocking rate it's actually not that sparse because the pigs would only be there for a short period of time as far as i know um because you graze other animals their primary food is not usually grass yeah although they do i mean they eat bulbs and grass Our wild pigs in california make i mean i wonder what the stocking rate of wild pigs in california is we have so many we have a 375 day a year hunting season on pigs i believe we have so many but yeah i don't i don't know much about that but they're not they're eating acorns so they're kind of limited by the number of acorns that fall and that are left on the ground and that can be variable from place to place i suppose they prune the trees to maximize acorn production but the ham in spain that's have a very unique kind of ham and if you go to the market they're selling these legs of ham and they're priced according to how much of the diet is acorns So the highest price is for the native black pig that's been fattened on acorns. And it's fattened because acorns fall in the fall and they're not out there all year round. Everything eats them pretty assiduously. So the pigs get out there in the fall and eat the acorns. One interesting thing is I was talking to a Dehesa landowner and we were looking at his pigs. And I said, what canopy cover do you manage your woodlands for? And he said, well, if I'm primarily raising pigs, then I manage for about 70% canopy cover. But in the areas that I manage for cattle, I want about 30 to 40% canopy cover. So there's an interaction between also whether they're raising, you know, they see the most value in the pigs or in the cattle or in a mix. So it is really uh, a human created landscape. So uh, um, saying one's stocking rate is higher than the other is hard. It's hard to compare. Also yeah. in California, we, and in Spain too, they have a lot of other animals that eat acorns. So there would be a bit of competition. You know, I recently gathered a huge amount of acorns and I found them in a place that was so fenced that deer couldn't get in. And there were tons, more than I'd ever seen. And it's just because of that exclusion of, and there weren't rodents either. Rodents eat a lot of them. Yeah. So there's a lot of competition for the acorns. And also- We don't have the same premium ham market here. Yeah. They do there. So there's not much motivation for people here to graze pigs.
0: Yeah. We had talked a little while ago about the importance of spacing the oaks because of accessing the water that's available and how the oaks that are still in California are primarily focused around those water resources. No, go ahead.
1: Oh, well, you know, as you go north, things are less desperate for water. So it's probably completely different in the North sure. than in the South where things are going to be more closer to water.
0: I was going to ask if you think first, if you think that's because of climate change and second, how this relates to a lot of things like the almond farming and things like that, that are going on in California. If you think that's impacting like the water access because of so many deep rooted trees.
1: Well, uh, uh, <laughs> The I don't know how deep rooted almonds are. They're usually well. I'll talk about that in a second. But um, I the oaks are older than climate change, and those patterns of oaks are older than climate change. So no, in terms of the almonds, I mean they irrigate them. So the big problem with the almonds is they pump at groundwater, uh, and they're stopping a lot. Of the, as I understand it, as I've heard. A lot of almond groves are coming out because the groundwater problem is so acute in California right now. I mean, we've had places where the soil has dropped 10 feet because the water was pumped during that long drought we had and the soil isn't supported anymore. So there's new groundwater regulations, I think, that make it harder to convert grazing land or uh, woodland to almonds. So it's a more direct form of using up the water than just the roots. Sure. And the oaks are not irrigated, so I, I don't I don't see them as contributing. The places where we're feeling those really bad uh, groundwater issues are by and large used for crops.
0: Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell. This content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future.
1: I do worry. Um, Last time I was in Spain, I read an article about the trade-off between carbon and water. So if you started planting a lot of woody vegetation in oak woodlands, including more oaks, you're going to see more competition for water, for sure, and maybe less water. The oak woodlands, I mean, almost all of the water, the fresh water we consume, in California, runs through an oak woodland at some point. So having a huge amount of water consumed in those woodlands is not necessarily desirable. But I don't think that that amount has changed due in the oak woodlands. That's my opinion. But it would if there was a lot of planting, I suppose. Interesting topic for research.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm always like thinking about like, I'm a big proponent of like silvopasture pasture. Yeah. And it's appropriateness in especially drier climates is an interesting conversation because they do a lot to stop water runoff, but at the same time, they use more water. So I guess like thinking about like the bigger picture of is it a net positive or a net negative to incorporate trees into some of those drier climates. And that's probably a very complicated conversation, more so than a yes or a no.
1: All right. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> All good ecological <laughs> things depend. Exactly. But it, the oaklands are set up for silvopasture. I mean, that's what they have in Spain. Um, what do they call it? Silvopasture. Well, yes. Oh, never mind. Anyway, but they have both. The Dehesa has silviculture and it has yeah. pasture, but it also has agro silvo pastoralism i guess that's what they call it also has some crop production every 10 years or so they have to clear out the woody vegetation and they usually cultivate when they do that so the oak woodlands of california are pretty easily used for silvopasture but again that's for silvopasture you're not going to increase the tree density too much because then you'll lose your forage yeah so i don't see it as an incompatible use so i worry about woodlots and you know eucalyptus plantations and those kind of things more than solo pasture, I think is a good idea because of the fact that they're sharing water, the forage crop and the tree crop are actually using water more efficiently in the soil profile and they're fairly widely spaced. And right now the main preoccupation I have is with fire and those work pretty well to create, they can work pretty well to create more fire resistant uh, landscapes, which we need pretty badly here. Yeah. Just can't take any more of this pounding that we're getting
0: yeah.
1: from fire. So unbelievable. And I don't think it's going to be a unique problem in the West if we don't do more of the management you were talking about. So agriculture can be a good partner, Yeah, you know, with forest management and tree management in terms of protecting from fire. I wish we used it more in the mountains, too, because I did my dissertation on using uh, livestock to manage Competing shrubs and forests uh, when they were regrowing, that was very effective, and it, that would also be very effective in reducing fuels and crowding. Now, one limitation of grazing—I think the same probably applies to prescribed fire, though—if you think about it, which is our other favorite tool—is uh, that you can cu- you can cut back the seedlings that you may need for regeneration.
0: And that's a problem in Spain, right?
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. Yeah here probably most the most biggest problem is deer deer love oaks but livestock do too and so there's various management techniques we can use to prevent that
0: my sheep are big fans
1: yeah yeah sheep i had goats for a while my god
0: (laughs) they'll eat anything just
1: no they just they won't but they oaks are like their number one priority i think (laughs) anyway they're not dumb (laughs) Anyway, I was shocked by that. But in Spain, they, it's high value enough that they can use little cages to protect the oaks. Once they get above a certain level, they're fine. Um, in California, we have so much land. We're not managing at that intensity. So we do that in some places. But uh, I've seen people put when they're, they clear brush and they pile it around the young oaks so that the oaks grow up through the brush and deer and cattle are less likely to get to them.
0: No, it's a good idea.
1: Yeah. In terms of cattle, if your main problem is cattle, they tend to prey on the oaks most when all the grass is dry. So you can cycle them out of oak woodlands during the summer season. You can also do long rotations where you're grazing in one area for years, and then you cycle them back over to another area. And then that time the young oaks have gotten big enough. Interestingly enough, I don't know if this is in the book or not, Those little seedlings, of some species anyway, will live as seedlings being cut off every year for a decade, for a decade at least. And we have an example in our backyard. We planted, of all things, a cork oak in our backyard. And uh, we fenced it so intensively with wire fencing. You wouldn't believe how secure it was because at the time we had goats. And they were after it. The goats didn't get it. It got to be about six feet tall, maybe eight feet tall. And then a gopher went in and we had this roots protected too. You know, a gopher went in through the fence and girdled it and killed it dead. It just turned brown and died just like that because they ate the bark off all around the bottom. So when I say everything eats oaks, there's also a bunch of pests, you know, insects. I don't want to say pests, but insects that don't do what we want them to do, you know, including and diseases, some of them from out of the country that kill oaks too. But anyway, that thing disappeared. And I guess I should look up how long ago that was, but I we haven't had goats for at least 10 years, you know? So it's 10 or 15 years. And the thing came back last year. Jeez. It, it came back. I know, can you believe that? So I've protected it this time with hardware cloth that gophers can't go through. And it's still got the safe, the soil protection. And the thing is now six feet tall again. It grew really fast, so
0: yeah, that coppice they'll they'll shoot right up once they have the that root structure.
1: Yeah, and after all that year, those years of coming up and growing roots and coming up and growing roots, I, I suppose it had a pretty good root structure. I have to admit that I grow my vegetables in stock tanks, and they have a drain at the bottom for the water, excess water to go out because we have so many gophers, <laughs> and I'm not that keen on spending. I find it very frustrating. I don't think there's any way to effectively eliminate them because we live on an oak woodland. We live near an oak woodland. The stock tanks have these pet holes at the bottom and you can put a hose in there. So on one of them, I just put a hose in there and ran it down to this little oak so that it gets the drainage from my stock tank. So I don't directly irrigate it, but it gets the drainage from the stock tank. So, and it, I don't know, it probably doesn't need it anymore, but I wanted to see it. When I saw it coming up, I thought, amazing.
0: You've invested too much in it. You can't let it die now.
1: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, so getting oaks, just, I have a friend again, Mitch McLaren did his dissertation on regeneration of oaks. And he said, everything eats oaks. And the real mystery is how they ever survive. And that's what we need to know more about is how to help them survive. Yeah. That's kind of the approach we take here in Spain. They've done a lot of reforestation with oaks and they They've protected them. Yeah. Uh, their problem is just the same problem we have here is that the income is very low. And there's competition for that land for vineyards
0: yeah.
1: uh, and for housing. It's a beautiful country. And that's the real crisis that our oak woodlands face in California and in Spain. Yeah. Plus intensification.
0: Yeah, which I think brings me to my biggest concern about oaks is climate change. So like, with all the knowledge that you've developed on this type of stuff, around this, I guess, silvo-pastoral type system, specifically around oaks, you know, if you could wave a wand and say, this is what I would like to see realistically, I guess, what would be the best solution to our current crisis, both for the water, uh, climate change, keeping species alive so that they can migrate fast enough for what's coming? Just a small question.
1: Well, first, a good idea would be to give them back to native Californians. That would be my ideal solution. And uh, we actually are trying to do a lot more collaborative management with Native Californians because of uh, traditional practices. And that's one way to try to restore some of their uh, resilience. But we all, none of us have experienced climate change right before. So there's all in front of all of us is um, kind of a mystery about what to do there's a paper, I think Connie Millar and a bunch of other people about forests and migrating forests. And it's about uh, letting, first of all, we could expand oak woodlands by converting some of our lower elevation conifer forests uh, to more oaks, because oaks are more climate change resistant in a lot of areas. And so uh, this paper basically explained that species are going to have to move higher.
0: Uh, I might've actually read that. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Pretty
1: cool. And by that, Oaks should move higher too, so we could expand uh, oak woodlands if we had the will and the willingness to do hands-on management, as you alluded to that. First, I see that as the biggest crisis of all is uh, no political will to take responsibility for hands-on management. You know, you make a mistake, people sue you. Uh, it's easier to do nothing. You know. Yeah. Ranchers still do it, of course. It's their land, private land, no problem. But. Even they could be facing regulations that'll make it harder. I hope not. But probably we're going to see some migration. Uh, maybe we have to do assisted migration of species from lower to higher and north to, I mean, south to north. So we have oaks all up and down California from the driest parts to the wettest parts. And maybe we'll see more. And uh, direct efforts are just spreading acorns around. It's not hard to plant an oak. Might help. What will happen at the very south, you know, we don't know, right? We don't know whether we'll have more rainfall in a specific spot. We don't know whether we'll have more rainfall or less. But even if we have more rainfall, how will that interact with temperatures, which make rainfall less effective? We don't know that much about that. I say we, but I mean me. And um, (laughs) so it's not quite clear, but that would be the obvious things would be things from lower rainfall Areas would move north. And then what happens at the very southernmost end? I'm not sure. We have a research project right now, Jim Bartolome and I, looking at uh, management in the Southland down near the Mexican border. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, that, that sounds interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. It's not necessarily about oaks, but there's oak woodlands there, and maybe we'll learn something about managing them. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a drought. And don't get me wrong, we've had some pretty bad droughts. But there's such a thing as what we call a range drought and a people drought. People droughts uh, require a lot of snow in the Sierra and um, enough of that plus rainfall to fill the reservoirs so that we can pump that water for irrigation and for the cities, right? We need places to save it and store it. Range drought is a little different. It's has rain been falling at regular intervals. Or decent intervals through the winter. It's not so much once you've saturated the soil, you don't need much rain to keep the green stuff growing. So, like the last three days, we've had three more probably more than three inches here, but probably the first inch was enough (laughs) for the range. The rest is going to just run off, maybe even the first half an inch. So, sprinkles and regular sprinkles are kind of the when you don't have those, when you have a summer or a winter when there's no when rain just doesn't fall for a long period of time, that's a that's a range drought. And we did have that and we have had it. And when it doesn't fall at the right time, it's a range drought. Whereas for urban areas, it doesn't matter too much when it falls, as long as there's a place to store it. For the range, we need sort of some rain. Now we went down to the Southland for our research project there and um, it rained. You remember, I don't know, you're probably... I doubt you were in California at the time, but we had a huge rainfall in October, I believe, and usually early. It's been falling, coming later and later. It's supposed to fall in October and November, but it doesn't always listen to us. But this year started in October, and so much rain fell. It was really a lot. But even down in San Diego, tremendous grass growth started up in our research area and some other things, some more drought-resistant broadleaves, like what we call filaree and um, started up and that was great everybody thought this is great but the rancher said well if it doesn't keep up I will never have as much forage capacity as I would if it had started later and kept up because it is true a lot of that grass has died now before this latest rainfall a lot of it just flat out died this rainfall will perk up whatever's left but it won't be the grasses so much that started out they germinated so that germination pool has been reduced. So we'll see. We'll see how productive it is in the end, but we don't know. The other observation, which I thought was fascinating by a rancher in this area was one year we had a lot of rain in the spring, which is prime growing time when temperatures warm and the soil's wet. Whoo, you get a lot of growth. And he said, I said, you must have so much grass. And he said, no, it's not that great because it's been so dark, <laughs> which I never thought about that if it's yeah. cloudy, constantly cloudy, the grass doesn't like it either. You need rain and sunshine.
0: Yeah. Now, because of the, I guess you could say the delicateness of the grasses, do you think there should be a coordinated effort to bring in other maybe native species that had previously occupied those spaces or maybe other species that from places of similar climates that can handle that extreme weather pattern?
1: Well, both those things are here and abundant in California. There's no need to bring in anything. I mean, the fact is no grass can grow without water. So it doesn't matter. If there's no water, the only way you can make more grass grow is irrigation. And of course we don't want to see an increase in irrigation. And when we do irrigate, we should irrigate our highest value crops, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter native, non-native, away from the coast. The coast is different because it's wetter in the summer, but away from the coast, the natives they're not active in the summer. They go dormant and they turn but they don't back. die. They don't die, which makes them more vulnerable actually than the non natives. The the non natives don't die either. No. No, they're annuals. So they're living through the summer as seeds. Gotcha. One pointed that out to me one time, living seeds throughout the soil. Those things pop up and they outgrow the natives. They get tall. They're more flexible. So first of all, you can't kill them with a drought. You can kill a native perennial with a drought. You can't kill them with plowing. You can't kill them with grazing. You can't kill them with prescribed burning. You can't kill the native non-natives. There's 10 years of seeds, at least in the soil. So even if you destroyed all the germination one year, there would still be seeds left for the next year and they produce abundant seeds, way more seeds than our natives. And they come up and they're competitive right from the beginning. So I, every year in my class, we grow natives and non-natives. with Stipa pulchra and Avena fatua for the grass fans. And they're under ideal conditions in the greenhouse. And the Avenas are at least three times larger than the Stipas after 12 weeks. Now you make a good point. The Stipas are there. They often can green, turn green faster. They also germinate faster. Than the Venus, but they'll green up faster because they don't have to grow roots. But the annuals they catch up. There's they'll never have as many or as deep roots than the uh, non natives, probably as far as we know. But they they make up for it by just being hugely productive. So one of our management issues in California is not bringing in new plants because that's not going to work. Uh, we've got the toughest grasses, and throughout any place there hasn't been tillage. The natives are still there. They're just kind of buried, but they're still there. When they, uh, oh, no, I lost track of what I was saying, but they are still there. No, our biggest management challenge and one that we can handle first of all, we can't do anything about rain. Yeah. That's the biggest, the control.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's like the big problem. Like, otherwise, I, I wouldn't. That brings me back to that. what I was saying about like climate change. Like, as much as you had mentioned, like giving the, the land back to the native Californians. Because of climate change, we can't just like turn back the clock in terms of land management. But that doesn't mean we can't take a lot of those ideas and bring, you know, they have a utility, they have a significant utility.
1: I think that native Californians would at least manage the land. And I don't think that's happening a lot of our land. So I would agree. (laughs) I'm in favor of it. And yes, as I said, it's new to everybody, right? Yeah. Climate change is new to everybody. We can take lessons from places further south. Or drier climates in California and see, you know, and seeds and, you know, all of that, acorns and so on. But it's, it's all new. Uh, flexibility, you know, that's in the name of the game. Yeah. And I tell you what, the annual grasses are incredibly flexible. And we now think that the Central Valley was not necessarily much of a grassland, it was broadly huge. I mean, there's a beautiful piece by John Muir about the bee gardens of the Central Valley, just Huge amounts of flowering plants because it was so droughty that it's not clear that it, the perennials. You know, they, even today you find them much more commonly either in the up at the higher elevations or near the coast where it's wetter. I have them in my backyard. Speaking of an area that's not only had fill dumped on it, house built on it, goats overgrazed it for decade for decades, and uh, they're still the of growing patches that seem to increase sometimes. I think sometimes you think they're increasing more than they are because during a drought, they stand out because they're still there and the annuals hardly grow. I don't know. I'd have to start measuring them more rigorously, but they're doing fine. <laughs> I collect the seeds for the experiment every year from my backyard. Uh, so they also do pretty well. Their Stipa is pretty adapted to most kinds of disturbance. So they do well. But anyway, uh, yes, our the dominant grasses in California today came from Mediterranean Europe, some from Australia, some from Chile, some from the few other little Mediterranean Australia, few other little Mediterranean regions around the world, and they're uh, a biodiversity hotspot. Many, many species, very diverse of all kinds. So, but the, the problem is sheer biomass. Our wildlife, in particular is not adapted to that much growth. So we use grazing and fire to try to create more uh, biodiversity positive environments by simply removing that biomass uh, and allowing, a lot of the natives, like vernal pools, they have these beautiful rings of flowers that come about around. And the uh, grazing in particular is incredibly useful because the cows eat the non-native grasses first, they're taller, they like them, they don't really like to eat little flowers, uh, but the other thing that's interesting, you reduce those and the smaller plants, there's some videos on this in YouTube by a preserve manager. The smaller flowers get access to the sun, you know, and can grow better. But because you've taken the annuals not only out of the rim, but out of the pool, they will grow into a pond and, and choke it. Uh, because you've done that, the water lasts longer and more of the native little shrimps and amphibians are succeed. In their breeding because their success really depends on how much rainfall there is and how long it stays in these spring pools
0: oh wow yeah that that's awesome a microcosm i guess of like a lot of the ecosystem things that we don't think about when we think about invasives and you can see in one little vernal pool
1: yeah and i don't i don't think that on a lot of california grassland we're going to restore native prairie uh there is some in the coast the coast is wetter and more resilient, but in our drier areas, I know preserve people that have spent tens of thousands of dollars on herbicides, soil removal, all kinds of stuff, trying to get rid of the annuals and restore natives and it, it may last a year or two, but without constant weeding, those plants are tough. yeah we uh, range managers, of course, have for a hundred years have said, "Oh well, okay." <laughs> But we have, you know, new people getting really involved. And I think it's wonderful that they care about the grassland and love it. And we've learned a lot from people about conservation and, and uh, the values, the biodiversity values, but it's very hard to, it's a very hard to say to them that's not coming back. Now, one thing that is good is I mentioned all those weird soils in California And there's other things that we don't understand that seem to influence where you still have dominance of native perennials. And, you know, I drive home on this urban street. There's one spot, one spot. It's beneath a park and some tennis courts. It just goes right down to the boulevard. And there's some oaks. There's oak woodland everywhere here. But it's solid native perennial. It's just a bit grassland is lump, 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 lump. And I've been watching it this year because I just noticed it because it's so incredibly native perennial dominated and taking pictures of it and how it changes. Because early when it first germinated, when it, the first rainfall fell, the stipe greened up right away. And then there was nothing between it. It was just stipe and dirt. And then other things started growing up. There's some soap root, which is another native species. And I need to go back and identify the other ones that were coming up between the bunches, because I think it's fascinating. But those kind of areas, if you can find areas like my backyard where there's still some stipa and places like that, and you expand those areas and manage them favorably for the grasses, that's the way to go. If you wanna restore native perennials, rather than trying to restore land that's been tilled before or that's so droughty that and is such good soil. The more fertile the soil is, the harder it is to restore the natives. There's a paper by a guy named Stuart Weiss about an endangered butterfly. That it was lost at the Jepson Preserve in Stanford. And it's called the Bay Checker Spot Butterfly, and it depends on flowers. And there was a serpentine site that had a lot of flowers on it along uh, the freeway 101. And deposition of nitrogen from car exhaust was overcoming sort of the natural hospitality of serpentine sites by adding nitrogen. And they were losing the pollinators. And if you look at the flowers, because the flowers are native and they can't compete with these annuals and they were being covered by this non-native grass. They were losing that and um, losing the butterfly as a result. And, and some, they did all the studies on the preserve at Stanford. You can look up the history and there's paper after paper about how climate change is causing this butterfly to disappear. Oh, it's finally gone. And a historian started working at Stanford and studied it and realized they disappeared shortly after they removed grazing from the preserve. Because grazing <laughs> removed the grass that was choking out the flowers. So this sounds apocryphal. Um, we just wrote a paper on it called uh, Grazing and Management of Imperiled Species, if, if anybody wants it. It's in, I think it's in sustainability. But what I'm saying is you look for bad soil and low fertility soil and places where Stipa already grows and you can maybe do some good there expanding the stipend, making sure it stays healthy, doing management that keeps it from being overcome by the annuals, that's, that's where I would start.
0: It's a sliver of hope.
1: <laughs> it's a sliver of hope, yeah. To the, yes, uh, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> nice. That's all, it's nice for, as a refugee uh, for native.
0: So Lynn, for folks that have enjoyed this conversation, Do you have a link to some of your work or some of the stuff that you're working on or something that you would like to highlight for folks that want to learn more about this?
1: Well, I think uh, we have two papers that my students did, I did with my students that came out, um, one by Sheila Berry and one by Nick Buckley, Buckley Biggs. She got married (laughs) a long time, but anyway, they're both really interesting papers, really timely one is um, about grazing an endangered species, and Sheila went through all the endangered species literature put out by Fish and Wildlife Service. I think it was a state, Fish and Wildlife, and what the documentation was, and then kept track. which Where is grazing positive? Where is grazing negative? Where is it both, depending on the situation? Uh, in a lot of cases, it's just not known. It's presumed guilty until found innocent in general, but Yeah, there's a substantial number of endangered species that really benefit from grazing. So that's kind of an interesting paper. The book, of course, for this topic is my favorite that you mentioned already. And then Nick and I did a paper about grazing and if there's a way to manage grazing to increase carbon sequestration. Awesome. And our conclusion is there's no data for California. There's data for other places. One of my other students showed you can enhance carbon sequestration in the Midwest pastures, but they're so different Yeah, because uh, carbon sequestration is controlled in California a lot by rain. So probably based on this other paper that I saw, the best way to increase, I mean, grazing is neutral for, as far as we know in all the data that we have, but okay. So the best thing is probably to have oaks, silvopasture, as you said, for carbon sequestration. Fire-resistant Storage, and uh, for grasslands, just protecting the soil and not letting the carbon get lost by erosion—that's what we do. Yeah. Until somebody shows differently, that's where we're at. And maybe they will. Maybe they will. Maybe. Maybe.
0: This is uh. This has been a really interesting conversation.
1: Uh, one thing is, I do have a website, so they can just Google my website, and it lists all my papers.
0: Awesome. Uh, what what is that website? Is it the Berkeley one?
1: Yeah, I think my website. The yes. It's my Berkeley website. Yeah. Awesome. And that links to another website, but the publications are on the Berkeley website. So just Lynn Hunsinger. I think if you just Google Lynn Hunsinger, you'll just write my name, you'll get it. Awesome. But it would be Lynn Hunsinger Berkeley. Not very many people are named Hunsinger.
0: Yeah, it's a a unique (laughs) one. But uh, Lynn, thanks so much. This has been great.
1: Thank you, Andy. This has been really fun and I hope people uh, enjoy it.